Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest booksellers and Amazon. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, well, what can I tell you? This episode is gross. Totally <laughs> gross. Ha, 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 ha. One of Drew's puns there. If it's, if it's multiple of 12, there's going to be a math pun somehow. So yes, today is episode 144. It is a multiple of 12, which means that we are going to do your questions and answers today. But also, because we have some breaking news in the world of homebrew, we are going to take a break and actually offer you an interview with Julia Hertz from the Homebrewers Association. She's now the director. She's back. Let's talk to her. Cool. And I guess we'll uh, do all of that right after we hear from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Before we get going here, Drew has an announcement. Yes, and the announcement was, if you haven't paid attention to your podcast feed or checked the website, we did launch a new episode of The Brew Files, episode 111. The, well, I love the name. It's a goofy name. Balking Around the Christmas Tree, where I'm sitting down with Chris Inigren of Inigren Brewing Company in Moore Park and talking about how he made what I think was actually my favorite beer of the whole holiday season, Integrin's Christmas Bock. Wow. And you didn't send me any? I only had two cans, and I'm okay. not that nice. <laughs> You're forgiven. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's undecided. <laughs> it's our favorite charity. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a new year, and we're going to have a new charity. We got a couple different ideas, and uh, next show we'll let you know who it is. But you know us, it's going to be something good. It's either going to be kids or animals or something like that. So keep on sending that money to Patreon, and we will pass it along to whoever we decide on. Woo-hoo. And now it's time for us to, well, not drink beer. It's time for us to go to the lounge. <laughs> yeah, man, no pub, but oh well, we'll, we'll go lounge. We're going to have a little chat here with Julia Hers, the new executive director of the American Homebrewers Association, uh, about her and the association and where it's going. Stick around. We're going to be right back. 
Yakima Chief Hops is a proud supporter of the global homebrewing community. We believe that homebrewers are at the true heart of craft beer. YCH is dedicated to supplying the brewing hobbyists, the homebrew side hustlers, and the late-night garage brewers with the same cutting-edge quality hop products as the brewers working on a 90-barrel tank. Yakima Chief is pleased to introduce the latest product in hop innovation right out of the R&D lab, Cryopop Original Blend. Combining their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with groundbreaking lab analysis, they've engineered a hop pellet packed with the most beer-soluble compounds to bring a true pop of tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas. Learn more at yakimachief.com. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. cool the the chairs are comfy we must be in the lounge and now it's time for us to talk and denny who are we talking with we are speaking with julia hers julia's been in the beer world for a long time and i mean you know not as long as i am old but she's been around for a while she's got some experience she was at the brewers association previously and now she's back with the aha so sit back relax Grab a beer, unless you're driving, and uh, listen while we talk to Julia Hers. We're in the lounge, and we have a very special guest with us today. We have Julia Hers, the new executive director of the American Homebrewers Association. How are you doing today, Julia? Right on. Hi, Denny and Drew and everyone else. I'm doing great. Oh, great. Uh, you know, it, it's really exciting not only to have uh, you as executive director, but to to know that there are uh, big things going on at the AHA. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, you've been like hanging out in the beer world for a long time. Not that you're anywhere near as old as I am, but... Um, Fill us in on, on your background and experiences in beer. Sure. What a great opportunity, Denny, and everyone has their story. I, too, am a geeky homebrewer um, with uh, the love of beer, you know, deeply uh, emulating in my soulful uh, way that I approach the world, and I, I love to brew. Um, I started brewing in my early 20s, and <clears throat> it's kind of been no turning back since. I, I could go in many different directions, Denny. How do you want to you know, kind of unpeel the onion of uh, of what we could talk about in the journey for homebrewing. Well, um, you know, let's, you you were at the Brewers Association for quite a while and uh, then got 
uh, caught in the big layoff and you're back now. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you did in the Brewers Association? Sure. This is my third tour of duty, believe it or not. And for anyone that's listening to Experimental Brewing, this amazing podcast that educates so many of us, you might not know what the Brewers Association is. You might not know what the American Home Brewers Association is. So it's the national organization that on the homebrewing side represents and um, really supports uh, the hobby of homebrewing. And on the um, professional side, supports small and independent craft brewers. And so I, in this third tour of duty, do proudly now take the baton um, over from many that have kind of stepped in my shoes before me, including the amazing Gary Glass, who is a dear friend of mine, um, lives 20 minutes down the road. We have beers often, and he's now a lead brewer for uh, Left Hand Brewing in Longmont, Colorado as well as Charlie Papazian, who I'm back and forth with today to get a recipe that I'm going to brew in his honor, um, a hoppy lager. And so this tour of duty at the Brewers Association is to lead the American Home Brewers Association. And I think it really goes back to the core of why I'm in the beer biz in the first place. And so I will be amongst other staff uh, at the Brewers Association, really helping to bring the hobby of homebrewing to an even broader group of people um, as we, uh, you know, go to the next iteration of this amazing organization. And, and, and today we have 37,000 30, members, um, which is incredible. And that's a pretty strong hobbyist organization, I would say. And I, I would love to see that be even um, a larger set of numbers. I'd love to bring more into the community um, and take some of the intimidation factor out of homebrewing. And you each work on that, Denny and Drew and many listening. Um, and really just kind of help the uh, AHA help others reach their homebrewing goals in a broader way. What, what do you see as the purpose of the AHA? Well, that's up to the organization itself. And basically the mission of the Homebrewers Association, or yeah, the American Homebrewers Association, is to help homebrewers make world-class beer. Um, and, uh, you know, a purpose is uh, something that will, uh, behind the scenes, I think, um, in this next iteration, hopefully be refreshed and documented. Um, but the mission is clear, and I think the AHA has been busy doing that in a very effective way for more than 40 years, um, since 1978. Zymergy Magazine has been around, and, and the hobby of homebrewing um, was federally legal. We can now brew up to 200 uh, U.S. gallons of beer in a family household since 1978. And so the core you know, mission hasn't changed, but I think the purpose over time can really evolve, and part of the purpose should be to bring homebrewing to many, many more people um, in a uh, you know in all walks of life um, from diverse backgrounds, um, not just your typical you know um, conceptual brewer because that concept of who is a brewer is changing. And I, as this little hundred pound female, you know, sitting talking to you in Lyons, Colorado, when I came in my twenties, you know, came of age in my twenties, and really got my chance to say I'm legal um, to drink, I'm going to also homebrew, I looked at myself as a homebrewer, and I want all others to do that that um, think they want to brew. So one question I get from people a lot uh, who are not members is, why should I join the AHA? What would you tell them? Well, and I love it because, Denny, you on your work on behalf of the governing committee, which kind of is a checks and balance and, you know, sounding board for the American Homebrewers Association, You'd have your answer, right? And I have mine. Um, they might not be exactly the same, but the gist is is that you've got six issues of Zymergy magazine a year, for example, the um, top of class publication that has been around since 1978. 
And frankly, um, in 1995, when I had moved to Colorado and I went to a beer festival in um, Beaver Creek, Colorado, and I was like stalking the um, people that were judges and look, trying to peer through windows and see what it would be like to become a judge. On that day, Charlie Papazian, who founded one of the founders of the American Homebrewers Association, picked my name out of a hat. And I started by, um, you know, that day getting Zymergy magazine and, and the AHA membership. Wow, that magazine alone is worth the membership. And then you also get access to digital archives. You get, you know, um, clone recipes, uh, award-winning medal recipes from the um, National Homebrew Competition, which is a kind of the Super Bowl, the biggest um, uh, competition to bag a medal in for sure. Uh, you get, um, you know, access to the uh, member deals, more than 2,000 of them to save money and certainly pay over um, tenfold your uh, membership to the AHA, which is less than $50, get discounts to Great American Beer Festival, and most importantly, besides the um, the representative uh, support for the American Homebrewers Association, so we can advance it, you know, and, and defend it and help um, on legislative issues, you are also joining a community, a global community that's ready to support you in any challenges that you have homebrewing, and also help remind you that homebrewing is here and help you brew more often um, and not feel alone when you do it. So what are what are the big challenges facing the AHA right now? Well, I think any organization in these times is uh, <laughs> is facing challenges in, in such a, a plethora of ways that none of us in our generation could have ever scripted. The American Homebrewers Association is definitely evolving um, and uh, affected by kind of these COVID times, um, uh, having person in-person events is something that we're looking to get back to in 2022, right? Um, the Homebrew Con that'll happen in Pittsburgh, June 23rd to 25th, and the National Homebrew Competition that will also happen in Pittsburgh in June. We're looking to get back to that. Not having um, a uh, annual um, in-person conference is definitely um, felt, right? You, you lose that collective powwow. So we are working towards having that and looking at it as an in-person event, and we're full steam ahead, super jazzed about that. Um, and then also challenges of, uh, you know, um, access to people and each other. I think homebrew clubs across the U.S. have really felt an interruption, just like the national organization. And the homebrew clubs, and there's 2,200 of those, at least registered with the AHA, you know, clubs haven't been able to meet as much in person. I mean, they're certainly starting to again, and I think that's a good thing. But a challenge to meet homebrewers where they are, even if they're not willing to meet in person, is definitely one that we're going to be getting at in 2022 and how to bring that community to you, even if you're not looking to do it in person. Well, and I was going to say, I think one of the fun things that people have been doing during the pandemic has been actually getting speakers together. And people might not be aware of this, but the AHA does actually have a speaker service, don't you? Um, I am on my third week of the job, and if you're naming a program that's called a speaker service, that is not on my big list. Drew, why don't you explain to me what you're talking about? <laughs> well, the, the AHA used to have what they called a speaker's bureau, but uh, I, I think that that's kind of gone by the wayside. But what we're doing now is uh, people can contact uh, the governing committee members, and uh, we'll get you set up with either one of the people on the governing committee or somebody else to be a speaker. Uh, and Drew has Drew has been doing a lot of uh, cool Zoom things with his club to really really uh, in enhance the uh, the Zoom experience and uh, build the community. Yeah, I mean, I think the real thing is that with 
all the stuff going on with the pandemic, yeah, we miss the in-person events. I mean, I miss having the chance to go to HumberCon and spend three days talking about homebrewing and not have anybody roll their eyes at me, at least not to my face. Uh, but the, uh, the zoom thing has been handy for being able to connect to clubs all around the world. And, you know, because I mean, Denny, what we've talked to clubs in Italy, you know, we've talked to clubs in Australia, we've talked all around the world. And, yeah. I've, I've lost count of how many clubs we've talked to. Yeah. And so I, I do think that's uh, fun and I'm, but I'm still looking forward to getting back in person. So, um, and actually, uh, Julia, one question I had, you know, so we do live in in this world now where you know it's like hey you know not only are people home brewers but we're now up to how many breweries are are there now in the U.S. I know it's over eight thousand but yeah I can't it's ticking up numbers. towards nine thousand official numbers for twenty twenty one aren't out yet but certainly shot yeah. just shy of nine thousand yeah I mean everywhere you go now in this country odds are pretty good that you're within a short drive of a brewery and in fact I'm going to have a brewery opening up within a short crawl from me and my house here in very short order. One thing I've noticed in my area is a lot of homebrewers who have just kind of stopped homebrewing because it's easier for them to go down to the brewery and buy a four pack than it is necessarily to spend, you know, however many hours per day brewing a batch of beer. Do you see that as a challenge for homebrewing, like trying to sell that value proposition of no, there's a real reason you do this. Well, I think that comes up a lot, and it's it's a matter of, of really remembering this is a hobby. Um, yeah, we all go out to eat, right? But we still love cooking at home. That's where the true journey of you know gastronomic exploration happens, and that's the same thing with homebrewing to me. But to, but to some, it's not. They would just rather buy their you know craft beer, and that's great. But if you really want to get in touch with the source of your ingredients, you know, smell the aromas while you're brewing. Have a, a carboy with your favorite T-shirt on it so it doesn't get light struck, you know, happily bubbling away in your in your bedroom because it's warmer in your bedroom and that's where it's uh, then good to, you know, ferment that Saison, for example. Then that's the reward, you know, on the day-to-day, minute-by-minute level when you've got beer actually fermenting and being made in your home. Yeah, Drew and I had this conversation actually uh, yesterday uh, most of the people I know brew for the brewing and not for the beer. And, uh, you know, when you talk about people buying instead of brewing, that's kind of like a, a completely different mindset. So I, you know, I, I think it depends on, on who you hang with and, uh, you know, what their reasons are for brewing. But I think you've uh, done a great job of, of saying why it is that people want to be brewing, you know, uh, it, it, it's that hands on thing that I did it myself. Well, and I'll, I will say that you, Julia, you bring up a good point about the smells in the last episode that people would have heard. They would have heard me doing a malt tasting of, you know, a bunch of crisp heritage malts, which are fun. That's a good, uh, that, that, you know, jazzes me. That excites me. That gets my blood going, but I'll never forget that one of the best aspects of that whole thing was that smell after I had powderized the malt and ground it up and just wafting through the air of like plumage archer smelling really, really nicely. Yeah, and that's just (laughs) blurring the process. Like, right, we're all sensory creatures. And Drew, that's going to create a pretty lasting, rewarding memory for you. How about when we also are done and it's all packaged, you don't have to keg it, although I certainly keg and bottle, but you bottle and then you give it as gifts. And what an amazing you know, extension of the hobby that 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 is because then you can get feedback from who you hand it to or make their day and have them feel special because you only had, you know, five gallons worth to give away. 
And that piece of it, it you you can't replace that. That's that's another big reason why I love to homebrew. Boy, that's that's really really true. I feel the same way. Uh, handing somebody some of your homebrew and watching the expression on their face, which is hopefully not a smile and a gag and spit experience. <laughs> yeah, you got to uh, hope. <laughs> yeah, but you know, to me, that is one of the the best parts. Uh, you know. It's just like feeding people. You know, you make them happy, and and homebrewing does a lot of that. Um, well, actually, I do have a digression. Since since you mentioned giving beer away and, and gifts and loving the sensory experience of it, Julia, you never told us, what was the first beer you brewed? So it was a scotch ale from a kit. It was all, um, you know, a full extract batch. Uh, I was in my young 20s, and I always joke we put way too much corn sugar in it, but it still rocked. And so it really made such a memory, and that was the story I just described of handing people a bottle of your homebrew. That was cemented that from that very first batch of how rewarding that was of an interaction, and I, I, I will never forget that beer. Awesome. And then the other question is, what do you like to brew now? So... For example, today, later, um, have a couple of the AHA team, American Homebrew Association team, coming to my home because we homebrew, and uh, we're going to get some photos, and we are going to be brewing the Brave Noise recipe that was created um, you know, from Ash Elliott and um, Jen Blair, as well as Brianne Allen. Um, and then later in December, Charlie Papazian and I um, are going back and forth so he can resend me because months ago he had, but I lost it. Um, a recipe of his that I had Creekside with him um, about 15 minutes away. He lives, and we were there one day, um, invited to pick up some uh, plant starts because he's got a great garden. Um, and we picked up the plant starts, and he served us one of his hoppy loggers, and I was all over it. It's right hitting the sweet spot, and so I'm super excited to, uh, to brew that. So you mentioned that uh, we're finally going to be able to get back to having an in-person conference this year in Philadelphia. Uh, which is great. That conference is one of the best parts of the the whole uh, American Homebrewers Association experience. What's going to be done to deal with the the health situation that we're looking at right now? Yeah, and so um, early in the year, the Brewers Association will be sharing further news on how the guidelines um, of you if you attend the homebrew con um, need to be followed. Right now, we are still buttoning those up, so I don't have a formal answer. And as soon as we do have that news, we will certainly be the first to share it to those who follow our channels. Um, hopefully, you get a newsletter from uh, American Homebrewers Association if you are a member, and also follow the social channels. But every step will be taken. I think the Brewers Association showed great prowess in recently having the Craft Brewers Conference with about 6,000 people, mind you, which is amazing, in Denver, um, about two months ago, successfully hosted and um, really done under very cautious conditions. I was personally there um, and felt um, really pleased to be in person and felt accounted for in my needs for caution. And so, you know, we've got a world-class team that will be continuing that caution in 2022. Cool. Uh, and I know that I know that you'll do a great job. Uh, and I just want to tell you, I'm paranoid as hell about even leaving my house these days. <laughs> so, uh, you know, knowing that uh, you guys will be taking extraordinary steps is, is a great comfort to me. So one, I, one of my personal pet peeves, I guess, is that I am – totally dedicated to homebrewing 
And I often feel that possibly the uh, American Homebrewers Association is a little bit too slanted towards commercial brewing, uh, you know, or, or homebrewers think of it mainly as a, as a step to go on to commercial brewing, uh, without seeing homebrewing as an end in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen that pretty much exemplified for many years by the fact that the keynote speaker, uh, at HomebrewCon is a commercial brewer. Uh, are we going to ever have a home brewer be a keynote speaker? Well, you sound like a perfect candidate, Denny, to send ideas. Um, and I am just <laughs> wading into that topic. And what a great year to um, really kind of get my feet wet in where we are working to, you know, uh, create a list of options for recruiting a keynote speaker from a demographic group, frankly, that might currently, you know, be underrepresented in home brewing. That's top of mind. And then certainly homebrewers should be speaking at the homebrewing conference. It is not only an avenue to jobs, although it's a fantastic avenue. It's also a great avenue if you're already in beer, but you're on the business side, but you don't understand the brewing side. It's a very safe and comfortable way to get to know all that. But I love your thinking. Um, I certainly am aware of the past, too, and, and a lot of brewers that are on the commercial side get, get us homebrewers fired up. But homebrewers ourselves are stars, and I think there's a lot of room to um, – to feature uh, that as well. And it'll be fun to navigate through the process and see where we land for a keynote. I love to hear you say that. <laughs> Denny Cohn yeah. for speaker. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, who knows, you know, but uh, at any rate, I, you know, from my point of view, I would certainly like to hear more about homebrewing in the keynote than about how homebrewing helps somebody become a commercial brewer. Uh, but you know, that's me. Uh, Julie, before we let you, uh, you know, go, what makes you excited right now about the about the AHA and about homebrewing? I love that question, Drew. And one of the things that I think we can continue to focus on further is not just the how to brew, because that information is so essential, and we really own that topic very well. Um, but it's also why we brew, and you you both are bringing that up to me in these questions. So I think a lot of our content in the future can do a nice um, job of an even mix of both. And there's just so many stories behind each one of us and how we brew and, frankly, how we use our homebrew sometimes to, you know, be, a, you know, a, a beverage for other, you know, uh, meaningful things to us, right? I've seen homebrew made on behalf of friends that have cancer, right? The, the holiday presents that I said, you know, handing somebody the homebrew, brewing somebody a keg to pair with their crawdad boil, you know, on their birthday, all of that and why we do it. And then, frankly, homebrewers who are hurting, um, and, and are having a hard time. I want to know about those homebrewers and how us as homebrewing community can support them. Um, I've been through, for example, the, the 2013 Front Range floods in Colorado, was displaced for two months, um, emergency evac, you know, trapped in my house for three days, like FEMA recipient, the whole deal. And, and yet our house was, was um, uh, only had, you know, a couple tens of thousands of dollars of damage instead of completely washed away. And one of the people that was washed away, a, a couple friend of mine, upriver, frankly, they lost their whole home, and they were homebrewers. So the best thing I knew how to do once they kind of got, you know, six months down the line and could see straight was I gave them some of my old homebrew equipment. I said, let's brew a batch of beer together. They picked the recipe. We brewed. We documented that process. And I just made them feel supported and good as homebrewers. And then they had a new place to start instead of having to, you know, pick 
Should I replace um, with the funds I've been given a bicycle or my homebrewing equipment? And so I was able to get them on the road a little faster. And I think I want to I want to get at and learn from others and be inspired from others on those kind of stories, too, as well as geek out and figure out how to save time, be you know more sanitary in what I brew and, and continue to brew world class beer. So those tips, uh, you know, they're never going to um, need to go away. And the stories behind all that and the history of beer styles and, and experimentation and innovation. But but the why we brew, too, is just as important. Wow. that That's Great. I mean, that is a really great example of, of how homebrewers are a community, you know, and uh, we all are in it for each other to uh, some degree. Uh, so I, here's something that uh, that wasn't on the list. You're, you're pretty well known for uh, your food and beer pairing ideas. What's your favorite pairing? I get asked that a lot. I am proud to be co-author of two resources, Denny, um, and there's my dog barking. Um, oh, cool. Ours, ours end up on the show a lot. Okay. I mean, you we can roll with him. Um, so co-author. Go right ahead. Got it. Co-author of a Beer Pairing, The Pairing Guide from the Pairing Pros with Gwen Conley. Just went into paperback, super jazzed, um, and it started in hardcover. Uh, and then also the um, craftbeer.com beer and food course I co-authored with Chef Adam Dooley, who is with the Brewers Association as the executive chef. So super cool um, you know, uh, resources that I've been able to document that I want beer educators and brewers, whether they're pro- professional or, or home, to have access to. Back to your question, um, one of my favorite AHA pairings is an easy one. I could go on and on, but I'll just cut to the chase and pick one for time. American IPA is so prolific, obviously. It's the number one selling craft beer style. About a third of all craft beer sold is American IPA um, and its variants. Um, and so I, I like to give people an option to pair with that beyond just, you know, the burger idea, which is, is, is a great home run often. Um, fettuccine Alfredo and American IPA. And then I'm going to dust that fettuccine Alfredo with some, you know, sage and a little uh, rosemary. Um, that's going to kind of marry with the American hops that maybe fall into spruce tips or juniper. And then I'm going to have some really um, enough counterbalance from the ABV of probably 7.5% if I have a more robust American IPA to match the um, that dense, rich, fatty, fatty nature of the IPA. So yeah, I've got I've got a lot of counterbalance. They work so synergistically, and uh, the IPA almost serves as a little bit of a sauce on the side of that fettuccine. Well, my mouth is watering. So here, I've got I've got one for you that you may not have thought of. I went to uh, a, a release event at Ale Song one time. And uh, they were pairing their uh, raspberry uh, imperial milk stout with a rogue blue cheese that was smoked over hazelnut shells. And let me tell you, as weird as that sounds, it was probably the best pairing I've ever had. That sounds epic. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, should you ever get a chance to try something like that, I highly recommend it. And uh, I wanted to mention it because it's certainly nothing that I uh, had ever thought of. I had a wacky one, Denny. Um, it was seared scallops, right? And scallops, as long as they're fresh or neutral, you don't want them not fresh. Right. The sear gives right. it some charred and Maillard, you know, reaction um, and some roast character. And then it was a hot mustard sauce over those scallops, and it was paired with saison. And it was, and I don't remember which brand saison. <clears throat> it was synergy in in a glass and on plate form for sure. Um, ooh, it, they ooh, made ooh, it just. The saison kind of eked out and pulled out some of that um, that char character, so there was a little bit more going on to the dish. 
it um, lessened instead of clashed with the spice of that um, mustard. And the mustard itself really fell into the saison and the malt flavors. Um, and a lot of the yeast um, uh, phenols and esters were really popping. Everything was clean tasting, and every bite and sip was delicious. I'm going to have to try that because I love scallops. Well, I was going to say, for me, it's like, I love scallops. I love saison. I see nothing wrong. <laughs> I know. And then I'll go further. So another wacky one, and this is from when I wrote the beer pairing chapter, um, I had to file what we would um, pair with a Flanders Red. Now, you know, Devils on Horseback is definitely a suggestion. That's like bacon-wrapped dates, often with blue cheese inside. But what my true surprise was is I had some lentil soup in the, fr- in the, in the cupboard, like just a can of lentil soup. And the, I mean, if I could read a book passage on this from beer pairing, that's the one I always choose. It's almost like a bedtime story to geeks like me and you, where the way I, we describe that pairing, um, the, you know, the, the rooty nature of the, the stock from lentil soup find its way, you know, to the, to the beer. Flanders Red does have some brown malt flavors. It's not just all about, you know, acetobacter and vinegar um, and, uh, you know, incredible dimension there. Um, and the, the beer almost serves like a, a lemon juice kind of spritz, right? Because you get a little acidity on top of that um, lentil soup. And lentils themselves have umami. So that sense of richness and savoriness really helps clean up and um, refreshen the chance for that Flanders to kind of um, show up uh, more sharp and bright in your, to your palate. Um, incredible pairing. Try it. Wouldn't have thought of it until I just had to pick something and, and test it out, and it's worth it. Ooh, really? That is a great, great concept. So uh, before we let you go, is there anything else you want to let people know about uh, the AHA and what you're going to be doing and how things are going to take shape? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'd say join us. Join the American Homebrewers Association and give the gift of homebrewing. It's certainly so easy to do. Um, uh, you know, like I said, depending on how you choose your membership, less than $50 for the year, and you're going to get so much back in rewards, savings from member deals, Zymergy every other month. So join us. Come find us in Pittsburgh at the National Conference in June, please. Enter your homebrews in, um, uh, you know, at homebrew, uh, National Homebrew Competition. Really, I mean, I personally, when I didn't work for the Brews Association, um, I bagged a medal in the uh, NHC, and I was so proud of that. My husband and I made an old ale, not an easy one to do. And so, you know, the, the memory and the feedback from that is incredible. Um, so I just say join us. Give us a chance to, to be in your email box and, and, you know, mailbox every other month, and, and, and you're going you're gonna to up your game in homebrewing. Um, and ping me on Twitter, at hersmuses. Uh, keep us posted on what you think keeps us cutting edge and uh, brew on. Cool. We have been talking to Julia Hers, the new executive director of the American Homebrewers Association, and it has been a total gas. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julia. All right. Um, Danny and Drew, Kate, thanks for ed- educating all of us. I'm a, I'm a devoted listener. Keep it up, and uh, I look forward to uh, talking in a few months. Maybe we'll catch up again. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll see you in Pittsburgh, the other place in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Although, you know, if we could go back to Philadelphia, I could get another one of those uh, Denex roast pork sandwiches right below the hotel. <laughs> back to food, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. If you have beer, you got to have food. Thanks again, Julia. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for the chance. Be well.
Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was Julia and her ideas for the AHA. And uh, I really enjoyed the beer pairing chat, too. huh? <laughs> well, it's always nice to have a beer pairing chat. And Julia certainly right. knows what the hell she's talking about there. Boy, she does indeed. Yeah, all the, and I will also say I'm glad to say that we have uh, you know somebody who, is, who has been a home brewer in the past back in charge of the AHA. Uh, hopefully that will help us get the things done that we need to get done as homebrewers. I hope so. She certainly seems to have a lot of energy and ideas, so uh, I'll be interested to see where it goes. Indeed. And now it's on to your questions. That's right. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, there will be questions about fermentation, and we'll see how we do with them. Stick around. This season welcomes Y-East Laboratories' limited release, featuring the Frosted Lagers private collection. We invite you to embrace the chilly days to come with brewing strains suited to the occasion. 2002 Gambrina-style lager, 2035 American lager, and 2352 Munich lager too. Lagers have been called the brewer's beer, and we know this sentiment is shared among homebrewers and beer lovers alike. Their light, clean nature is ideal for expressing the fine nuances of your brewing ingredients, especially the floral and fruit notes, complex flavors, aromatics, and mouthfeel created by the yeast. Between your winter ales and experimental brews, try one of our latest releases in your next lager recipe. Visit yeastlab.com for more information on which styles pair best with these strains. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. back everybody it's time to talk fermentation and drew has the first question and our first question comes from patty souza in nevada city who emailed us to say is this a bad idea kind of question i love those sorts of questions i brewed two three gallon batches of we heavy five days apart the first batch used imperial tartan and it took off within hours when i went to ferment the second brew the first had gone from 1084 to 1024 the homebrew store had White Labs Edinburgh, no tartan. I used that on the second batch with a dose of Fermate O, and it took a couple of days to start in and two weeks to get to 1024. This has been my past experience with this strain. 
The full pouch to a three-gallon batch has been successful for me as an alternative to starters on bigger beers. Here's the question. It seems that the first batch had grown a healthy yeast cake as the second was ready. What would have been the harm in adding the second brew to the first brew and utilizing the active healthy yeast? They were both fermenting in six-and-a-half-gallon big-mouth fermenters with blow-off tubes. Plenty of room to combine them. They both wound up finishing at 1016 and are joining other batches with my homebrew club mates in a barrel collective. Dincenzo? Yeah, well, far from being a bad idea, that's a, actually a pretty good idea. It's often done in the commercial brewing world for sure. Uh, I don't know if, I mean, five days may be a bit longer than they usually go yeah. before pitching, but I don't see any problem with it. Do you? Only the five days. Um, to me, I think if you're going to do this, and to your point, a lot of professional brewers will double batch, so you know, and sometimes triple or, or quadruple batch, depending upon the size of their tanks, where they basically brew one batch, put it in the fermenter with the, the initial pitch, and then brew a second batch and immediately transfer that in on top of that that initial pitch. But they're usually doing that, you know, basically straight up, straight up back to back, or maybe overnight. Um, the five day part would be a little worrisome to me. If the beer was already finished or just about finished, then I probably would have just tried to get some slurry out of there, uh, you know, transfer the beer and then get the slurry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it would be a thing that you could try. I just would do it closer together. Yeah, I don't see why there would be any problem with five days. Uh, I mean, you know, admittedly, that's not the way it's. I'd be worried about where the yeast is in, in the kinetics. I think you'd want to get. Yeah, I think uh, I think it would be better if you caught. I think you. I think it would work better if you caught it while it was in the upcycle. But that's me. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe. Uh, I, I again, I don't think it's a problem. Uh, so tell you what, Patty, do it and let us know. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a difference of opinion, but I still think you know the idea of reusing yeast at least is well worth. It. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Thanks, question. All righty. The next question comes from G.K. Hodge via email, and it says, Dry yeast lag time, when to worry, if at all. Just wondering your thoughts on lag times and pitch rates for dry yeast. I've gone to one packet for most dry yeast pitches in a five-gallon batch, whether lager or ale, with the notable exception of very high-gravity beers, which get a double sachet or, more than likely, a healthy slurry pitch from a prior batch. And slurry repitches from low-generation numbers, rarely over five repitches anymore. I kind of like the results and attribute it in part to the yeast going through all the phases of its reproductive cycle. I found overpitched beers just a bit flabby, but it could be confirmation bias. Who knows? Anywho, what say you? What say you, Drew? What say me? Uh, I think, I mean, everything GK is doing there sounds absolutely top-notch and exactly what I expect. Um. And actually, when I'm using dry yeast, that's pretty much what I'm doing anyway. Like uh, for any of my five-gallon batches, uh, you know, one batch of uh, yeast. I mean, actually, I will sometimes even cheat and go with not a super high-gravity batch of beer, but, you know, a moderately high-gravity batch of beer. So say like 1080, 1090, and actually, you know, maybe throw just one pack in there, although most of the time I'm throwing two. Just depends on if I'm lazy or if I didn't buy a second batch. Um, the one thing I will caution about is remember that once you've actually rehydrated that yeast or, or brewed with it the first time, the slurry that you get at it, the slurry that you get out of it, you treat no differently than any other liquid yeast that you would be using. 
So yeah, right. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I think I, I think this is uh, you know basically the right way to do it. It's what I do. Yeah, it's what I do most of the time too. Um, I almost always use well i shouldn't say almost always because i don't do anything almost always anymore i go back and forth between using one and two packs uh for both lagers and ales trying to decide if i have really found a big difference in it and obviously i haven't decided that yet because i still go back and forth between using one or two packs Uh, i don't find that it has much impact on lag time um it might, but again, I'm I'm not tracking lag time that closely. Uh, I generally don't worry about it unless it gets to four days and I don't have any fermentation. Uh, other than that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, two hours is as good as 72 hours. Uh, I do definitely agree about the results of pitching too much yeast. Now, this is a question that comes up frequently in the home brewing world. Can you overpitch? And the general answer is no, it's pretty much impossible to overpitch homebrew. Maybe, maybe in the sense of ruining the beer, yes, it's impossible to overpitch. But, uh, like GK, I found that pitching less yeast, not, not underpitching, let's be clear there, uh, but pitching less yeast allowed for more flavor development in the beer. So uh, I have gone through the years from uh, putting a new batch on an entire slurry from a previous batch onto maybe a, a third of a slurry from a previous batch, and I feel like I've gotten better results like that. But like GK said, is this confirmation bias? Who knows? I haven't done a side by side, but it is definitely the impression that I get. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. And also, like you, I don't really tend to worry about lag times, although I do tend to worry if I'm past a day without any activity, unless it's a logger. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the whole, well, I mean, we've, we've talked about it before on the podcast. The whole sort of macho chest beating, I got kickoff time in four hours is overblown. Um, but as long as you're actually moving. Sounds like you have company out there in the brewery. Uh, yeah, no, that, that would be Hugo. Hi, Hugo. <laughs> Hi, Hugo. But yeah, I think, I think, I think it's all good on this question. Yeah, right. So basically, uh, the, uh, the answer is don't under pitch, don't over pitch, be like the three bears and Goldilocks and make it just right. Yeah. And it turns out, um, a pack of yeast does the job pretty yes. well. It's almost like yeah. they they chose it that way. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, again, I think that uh, my feeling is that most of the time one pack is okay, but I do kind of throw in two sometimes just to see. So, oh, well. You, you know, actually, it's kind of funny. I think on the Falcon's Claws, I usually do yeah. too. And I remember, uh, for context, the Falcon's Claws is, starts at 1140, right? 11, 1.140. Uh, so, Mondo Beer. I've done two packs of that, and I think a lot of times I end up going three. Yeah, well, for something like that, I certainly would, or or slurry. You know, yep. that that that's a case where I might use an entire slurry from a previous batch, you know, for a monster beer like that. So I guess that there's really no hard and fast rule. There are there are guidelines, right? Like the pirate's code. Well, I mean, there 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 are hard and fast rules. I mean, you do want to. Make sure that you've got enough uh, enough yeast in there. So don't go pitching a half pack. That'd be kind of pointless. But don't <laughs> don't worry too much about the two pack rule until you're there. 
until, yeah, right. until you're up in gravity, I should say. All right, question number three in the ferment category comes from Ken Collins in Kentucky, who thankfully was not anywhere near those tornadoes that we had back in December. Yay. Thank you, Ken. I hope you stay safe. Uh, he's got a yeast question here. I have a shaken, not stirred Y-East 1762 starter that was made on 8-16-21. Package date, 7-18-21. I made the starter to build it up for Belgian Dark Strong Ale. The yeast package didn't swell, but I added it to the starter anyway. After two days, I saw activity, and the yeast looked okay. But it wasn't ready for my brew day. So I used Fermenta Safale BE-256 yeast for the brew. The beer turned out good, but not as good as if I had used Y-1762. I'm wanting to brew another Belgian Dark Strong Ale with this yeast, as I saved it in the fridge in a lightly tightened mason jar. I could use some help on building the yeast up for a 5-gallon batch. My plan, 1. Make another Shake and Not Stirred starter. 2. Make a 2- or 3-gallon 1050 beer from the starter. 3. Use the yeast from the smaller beer for the Dark Strong Ale. Please give me your thoughts on this. Thanks in advance. Yeah, man. Uh, sounds good. Uh, I don't know how strong your uh, dark strong ale is going to be. Uh, definitely the idea of making another SNS starter with some of the slurry from uh, the starter that you have right now is a good idea. Uh, unless your new dark strong is going to be really, really strong, I might not make the 1050 beer. On the other hand, it's not a bad idea because you could pitch part of that slurry into the Dark Strong and maybe even save some to reuse again. Uh, basically, I guess what I'm getting at is I think that uh, your plan is sound. Uh, you may want to just tweak it a little bit depending on what the gravity of that Dark Strong is going to be. And I'll throw in there that I actually think step two is actually a good idea because it gives you a cutout. Um, because my one worry, so if the starter was made back in August and when Ken sent us this email, it was, you know, mid December. So that's what, four months, four months then. Yeah. Uh, four months in the, in the Mason jar, you know, under, I'm assuming beer, uh, you know, or, or leftover starter work. I'd be a little worried about, you know, the, not only the vitality of the yeast, but whether or not there's any sort of mutation that's happened or any off flavors that you might get from that particular yeast. So doing that step two with a small batch of beer actually to me is a good cutout point because then you can taste the the beer and go, Ooh, yeah, no. Or, Ooh, yes, fine. Or, yeah, eh. you're right. You're right. That That is a good idea. Um, and not only that, but you end up with another batch of beer. Absolutely. So there you go, Ken. Easy peasy. Just, uh, you, you got the right idea. All right. Um, question for Denny. Our next question comes from T Tash on the AHA forum. And uh, he says, he or she says, when you have a yeast slurry that you've harvested from a previous batch or gotten from a local brewery, are you just pitching the entire slurry into a new batch or are you making a starter from the slurry first? If you're making a starter from the slurry, how much slurry are you using to make the starter? No, no. Um, so, no, when I get a slurry from a brewery or I'm taking it from a previous batch, no, in, in very rare cases. Am I using the entire slurry? I mean, if you go to a professional brewery and you ask for a yeast pitch, the amount of yeast that they'll give you in a growler is going to be insanely way too much for what we need. Um, just in the time yeah. that it takes to open and close the valve. Um, so I only use um, a couple of ounces at the most. 
of the of the uh, the slurry. And the only time I'll do a starter from the slurry first is if, in the case of the previous question, like with Ken, if that slurry has been sitting for a little while. Uh, at which point in time I'll make the starter in order to check the vitality. And again, at that point in time, if you're making the starter, it's really just a couple of tablespoons and let that run. So that's what I do. Yeah, very, very much for me. Uh, if it's from a previous batch of beer, I mean, again, it depends on the gravity of the beer you're, you're going to be pitching it into. But for uh, an average beer or let's say something up to maybe 1070 or something like that, I might use like a, a third of the slurry from a previous five-gallon batch of beer. Um, if I'm going to be making a starter with it, I too use a tablespoon or two, although our good buddy and yeast whisperer Mark Vandita tells me that's way more than I need. But, <laughs> you know, it's close enough for home brewing, so that's, that's what I do too. So I think that we're pretty much in agreement on that. Yeah, exactly. So... Again, yeast are nuclear weapons. They don't require uh, as much care and caution as we tend to take with them. Uh, but in this particular case, you also, when Denny had mentioned earlier that there was no, or very unlikely to get a overpitch situation, this would be how you get an overpitch situation if you went to a brewery and just dumped the whole slurry into your beer. Yeah, right. Or, or you use the entire slurry from a, a 1050 batch for another five gallon 1050 batch, something like that. That, that would be overpitching. Uh, it might not ruin your beer, probably wouldn't ruin your beer, but you would probably end up with better tasting beer by pitching slightly less yeast and letting it go through all the growth phases. And our last fermentation question from Will Allwart on Facebook. Hi, Will. He says, do you know if Lalamon, Fermentus, or any other dry yeast manufacturers have any new lager or ale strains coming out this year? I've almost exclusively switched to dry yeast these days. It's just so much more convenient, and now there's some decent variety, too. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things that are coming out. Um, so I know right now, actually, I have here in my greedy little hands something I have to play with, and I'm going to try and get... Lalamond up on the podcast to talk to us about it, uh, is Lalamond's farmhouse hybrid Saison style yeast that they have. So another sort of Saison-y dried yeast. I'm, I can't wait to try it and see how close it gets because this is still one of the, the big areas that I'm disappointed in is that we don't really have a good dried Saison strain to my mind. There are things you can do to get close, but not yet. Uh, so there's that. I know Fermentus has a new yeast that's coming out. I don't think it's available at the homebrew level yet. But it's a carb, it's a, a, a yeast one that is both a lager yeast and a carb reducer enzyme. So all in one, uh, to allow you to actually, you know, like make a very, very dry beer. Um, and there are, there are, oh, and then, uh, what, uh, uh, what was the other one? Oh, they, they come up, they, they've come out with a new kettle sour bacteria. So that will actually sort of preserve more of the yeast flavors that you get from your primary flavor strain. Uh, so no, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of things that are coming out. Oh, and don't forget, Omega just released uh, their own dried Lutra strain. So we're seeing new we're seeing new dried strains coming out all the time, and you can trust that as we see them, uh, I will keep talking about them because truthfully, I think probably two thirds to three quarters of what I brew, I brew with dry yeast. Yeah, I've definitely gone that way too, um, and yeah, and. I can't think of any specific 
new things that I know of coming out, but I know that there is a ton of stuff. The yeast companies are really going crazy these days. Uh, a lot of them are using genetically modified mm-hmm. yeasts uh, that you know aren't really Saccharomyces. Um, see, I think I saw today that I believe it was Escarpment yep. who has come out for with a yeast for primary fermentation of sour beers. It was a combination of Sack and Brett. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I would say that there is new yeast stuff that you're going to see continuously uh, throughout the next year. Uh, it's really great how pretty much all brewing ingredients are really going through an explosion. Uh, the yeast, uh, new varieties of hops, of course, and uh, then all the new malts that are coming out, too. So keep your eyes open, man. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff happening. Yes, indeed. All right, and that's the end of our fermentation segment. Time to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking hops and malt, so stick around. Does your fermenter need to have Wi-Fi? Not necessarily, but is a Wi-Fi-enabled fermenter incredibly useful? You bet. Using the Grainfather app, brewers can monitor and adjust fermentation from anywhere in the world, a feature that could come in handy if you want to start a diacetylrest while sipping an umbrella drink on the beach. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is constructed from 304 stainless steel and has a total work capacity of 8 gallons, making it just the right size for your 5-gallon batches with plenty of headspace. A 1.5-inch tri-clamp on the lid allows up to 2 PSI of top pressure for work transfers, and the 2-inch tri-clamp port on the bottom of the cone makes true dumps a snap. Particularly nifty is the dual function valve that lets you transfer and sample beer or pull yeast using the same valve. The integrated 12-volt, 30-watt heating element makes it easy to gently warm your fermenter, while a built-in cooling sleeve only needs to be connected to an optional chiller to get the temperature down. The new and improved Grandfather Conical Fermenter Pro is available now at grandfather.com or at a homebrew shop near you. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
Okay, so during the break, we decided there was just too much here for one show. So we're going to finish up the rest of these questions on the next show. Hope you'll be here with us then. So, okay, this has gone on long enough. What do you say we put people out of their misery and wrap this thing up? Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on a whole bunch of different places. Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrew channel. You can usually find me either on the AHA discussion forum or over on Facebook. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or just rant and rave, you can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can get a hold of each of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can send us a voicemail or a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky and we'll see you on the next episode of experimental brewing 